Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 is where we're going to start reading today. We're now uh, really uh, moving along into the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, so here we go. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled on by men. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. This is God's word. So, uh, my guess is that if you have grown up in church or been around church, you've heard this passage preached. We've already said the Sermon on the Mount is probably the, the most famous uh, teaching uh, from Jesus in the Bible. It's, uh, you know, a pretty lengthy, you can read it in about 10 minutes, but it's a pretty lengthy uh, response, a reflection uh, of Matthew writing down the words of Jesus and the things that he said as he was sitting on a hillside teaching a crowd of people. And as we've been working our way through this, last week, Harley uh, wrapped up what we call the Beatitudes. The word Beatitude simply means blessing, uh, a happiness. Uh, so we, we wrapped those up last week, even though we will continue to refer to them throughout the entire series. Uh, we move on today to sort of what I would consider to be the transition passage, the transition text. It's a bridge between the Beatitudes, where, we're, we're talked to, where we talk about the character of a Christ follower, the character of a kingdom person, really more important, a person who's walking in the kingdom of God, uh, to transition to the conduct, how those people actually act in real life situations and circumstances, okay? And so the reason this is significant, as we've said, is that this Sermon on the Mount, that's Jesus' words that were given to this crowd, you know, 2,000 plus years ago, are very relevant to us today, right? Uh, Becca prayed this in her prayer at the end uh, of, of, of the time of worship this morning, that these words that are archaic and old, uh, ancient, that they would actually breathe new life into us today because they're still alive and they're still active and they're still very applicable to our everyday life. And I find that every day in my life, as I read God's word, how very true God's words are and how well they assess what's really going on in the human heart and how well they actually give us a picture of reality. And so I think about as these words are being um, taught from Jesus' mouth, and here we are, again, over 2,000 years later, sitting in this room with a group of, of people in the United States of America, Austin, Texas. Uh, these words have such great meaning and depth for us, such great insight. Now, as I said, some of you grew up in church and you've heard these words so much that you can have a little bit of numbness to them. You know what I'm talking about? You kind of just get a little bit like, oh, yes, I know this passage, salt and light. I've seen the t-shirts, I've got one, I've got a bumper sticker. You know, it's like, I know about this passage, right? You got the salt shaker and it's dumped out, get out of the shaker. Uh, you know, you got the lights, the light bulb, be the light. I mean, we have all these things that we do, right? And, I, and I, I'm not making fun if you wear that shirt, but I kind of am. But anyway, um, no, I'm not. Uh, but, but here's the deal. I, I, the goal is not to just simply wear the Christian t-shirt, but it's actually to be the salt and be the light, right? And, and to, to really re- represent God in, in the earth. And so as we look at this passage, I want to slow down on the front end just a little bit and make sure that we understand what's being said in this passage. Uh, sometimes when you read the Bible, you read it in large chunks. So you read large sections of Scripture. Sometimes you might read a chapter, like a whole psalm. Or you might read, sometimes you might even be able to read a whole book of the Bible. 
Now, I don't recommend that as a normal way of studying the Bible. Uh, I think that just my personal opinion is that when you read the Bible, if you move fast through it, there are things that you see in it that you don't always get to see if you're, um, you know, if you're, if, you're, if, if you're moving slower. And when you move slow, you can actually meditate on each word, knowing that there's not a word in that Bible that's there by accident. Okay? There's not a, there's not a, a punctuation mark. There's not, a, there's not a word that's there. The Bible literally says, it's kind of a funny word. It says there's no jot or tittle. There's not, no little mark in it that's there by accident. And it won't pass away. It's always there for, for, for eternity uh, as God's forever enduring word. But that being said, when we slow down, sometimes we can start to, to understand something at, a, at a, a, a deeper level. You know, we've talked a lot about the need to meditate on the word of God. And when you fly past it sometimes, you kind of get a drive-by reading. Um, you miss some of the neat things that are there. So I want to start slow, and then we'll kind of speed up, because I think it actually gives some, some context and some direction to the rest of Jesus' words here that many of, us, many of us have heard before and may have already jumped to the conclusion. You've already jumped to, like, the application part of it, okay? So the first thing he says is you. And the question is, is who is he referring to? Who's he referring to when he says you? Is he referring to uh, Christians? Well, this is the application that we typically jump straight to. But remember, there were no Christians. <laughs> they weren't called Christians. This is Jesus on a hillside teaching his disciples and a crowd of people who were interested in what he was teaching. Right? Some of us in our Western world, we already go, well, he's just talking to Christians and he's telling Christians and we just go ahead. He's saying you, you, you group of people. Some of you just curious, interested, want to see the freak show because he's healing people. Remember we talked about his ministry. They were like very excited about him. He taught with authority. So they're curious and they're out there on the hillside. And he says you, and then he says are, the verb are. You are, not you will be, not you have been, but you are. That's important, right? Just keep tracking with me. You, this group of people out here are, and then he says what? You're the salt of the earth. You're the salt of the earth. Okay, well, that's interesting, Jesus. Why are you calling us salt, right? If we're a crowd of people out there, again, because we've heard this so much, we're like, what does that mean? Um, You know, we kind of jump again to, oh, well, we already know what he means by that. But if you're a group of people and Jesus is standing in front of you teaching, he says, you're the salt of the earth. (laughs) Okay, Jesus, great. Are we, should we be offended by that? Should we be excited about that? Like what? But he says, you're the salt of the earth. Well, salt, we do know, it was, was a common, uh, common uh, commodity back then, just like it is today, right? Every person would have had salt in their house uh, because we need it. It's good, really good. Um, and so we want, we want salt. They had salt. They needed it. They needed it more than we do because they actually use it as a preservative. And we'll come back to that in a second. But they would have known what salt was. And he says, you're the salt of the earth. But what's really interesting is the next phrase in this passage, okay? And you're going to have to hang with me for a second. Can you guys do that? We always tell you, don't, don't check your brain at the door, all right? Think through what you're hearing and evaluate it. It says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, some trans- translations say, but if the salt should lose its saltiness, okay? If the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? Now, this is where English translations don't really help us out. Um, and, and it doesn't mean that it's wrong. It's actually the best way to try to, you know, trying to explain what Jesus is saying here. But he actually says something that's very odd. 
Can I tell you what he says? He says, but if salt becomes foolish, if salt becomes foolish, then how can it become salty again? How can it become salt again, literally? Now, the reason this is significant is not because I'm like, oh man, I'm going to tell them something never heard before. It's because if you look at the word here, what Jesus is saying to a crowd of human beings who have a heartbeat and a pulse is that you were created by God to be salt, but humanity is foolish and has not, is no longer salt, no longer being salt. Are you still with me? Let me say this differently. He's saying to this crowd of people, you were created in the image of God for a very distinct purpose and reason. But when you reject God and you rebel against him, you cease to be what God intended you to be. This is so significant as a backdrop, even though I know we all know the application of Christians are to be salt and light, to understand that every human being on this planet was intended for a purpose. And that purpose is much bigger than getting a job and education, having a house, having babies, uh, getting married, all those things. I'm getting those out of order, but you know what I'm saying, right? Don't, Don't do them in that order, by the way. So what I'm saying to you is that there's a much bigger purpose. And if you're a Christ follower who's been in church very long at all, hopefully you've heard these words that every human being, regardless of whether they would say they're a Christian or not, was actually created in the image of God and for what? God's glory. God's glory. That's what we were created for. And it's an awesome purpose. It's an incredible purpose. It's a beautiful purpose because we actually get to reflect the creator. We are actually created. We're the only part of the creation where he said it is very good and you have this role and this responsibility in your life to reflect me. We're the only creation in the creation story that was created in God's image. The rest of creation is good. It's beautiful. It's amazing. But humanity is the crown of creation. Now, don't get too puffed up and arrogant, okay? But it is true, isn't it? And whether you're a Christian or not, you have inherent worth and value because you're created in God's image. And Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt becomes foolish, if salt rejects its purpose, if salt begins to do something other than what it was intended to do, it becomes worthless and it should just be thrown out. Thrown out. Literally in this text here, we're reminded that in their day, they had what you might experience in other parts of the world. They didn't have a very good trash system, Okay. They didn't have a place to, to go dump their trash. They didn't put them in little bins and roll them out to the street. If you're me, it's like Wednesday morning and I'm jumping out of bed. Oh, trash, you know, running through my bins and running them out there before they get there just in time. And they didn't have that. So when salt or anything trash, it just threw it out in the street and it gets trampled, right? That's how it goes. So they understood that. They got that. The bottom line in this first little piece here is to remember that as Jesus is talking to these crowd of human beings, He's painting a picture for all of these people that they have a God-given purpose, a valuable purpose. They have a design. And yet, something's off, right? And we know what that being off is. Now, he does say if the salt should become foolish. But we would say, in, in a sense, that all of salt, humanity, has become foolish in some way and chased after our own way. Would you agree? Now, with that in mind, he not only says that it's no longer good for anything to be thrown out and trampled by men. I want to I just stop for a second here and, and meditate on this before we move to his next metaphor. Um, we live in a, a day where politiz, 
politicization, um, you know, just the way that the world works, uh, we are seeing polarize, uh, polarizing like never before, right? And we are seeing people at each other's throats, and we see uh, Facebook social media warriors, um, you know, typing away these evil, hateful things and, and, and posting things, uh, many, sadly, in the name of Jesus. Uh, we see people uh, really just at each other, and culture, there's a lot of conflict, and we are a very divided nation um, politically right now. And, and, and I want you to know this morning, this is a great opportunity to stop and say this, that I... I'm really sad to see the gospel being obscured by our own personal agendas. Now, that being said, I understand that there are visions and there are values and there are parts of um, what we believe as Christ followers that should shape and color and should give us insight into how we are to live as human beings and what things we are to do. But I'm also thankful that this morning that we're not called to gather under one political party. We are called to be gathered under one king. His name is Jesus. And so when we have differences of opinion about how politics should go down, which we don't preach about politics here. This is as close as I've gotten in quite a while. We come and we realize that we live in a world and a culture where there's always going to be an opportunity to be at odds with other people. And we want to be very, very careful We want to be very, very careful about how we approach those conversations. In fact, Paul's words were we should be very careful with those who are outside of the church, right? We should be very gentle. We should be very kind. We should be very gracious. does not mean we cannot express what God's put on our heart. But it does mean that how we do it, it has to reflect the heart of our God. Now, one very specific issue that I can't help but talk about today. Because it's been weighty for us. And that is, is that right now, we live in a day where... Uh, you are probably aware that abortion in New York State and in uh, other places in the, in, in the United States soon following, that abortion has, has taken a whole new level of intensity and attack on the unborn. And as a Christ follower, I have a value of the human life because I believe that every human being was created in God's image for his glory, what I just said to you earlier. And I believe that because they were created in God's image and for God's glory, and I know that there's a lot of conversation around this, then I cannot be quiet if innocent lives are taken, right? And as a human being who is created in God's image, who believes that Psalm 139 is true, that God created us while we were knit together in our mom's wombs, and that that in even Jeremiah where he says, before you were born, I, I formed you in your mother's womb, then we know that this is a very serious issue, right? Now, I don't want to get sidetracked by this for the rest of the conversation today. But I would say to you that as, as Christ followers, as people who represent the king, that we do value those things. But how we actually approach that conversation must honor God. It must. And I would say to you that even this past week, I've seen Christians not honor Jesus while trying to attack those who are definitely in opposition to God. May we be a people, may God give us the grace to be a people who can reflect what salt was intended to be. Right? Are are you still with me? I'll be happy to have that conversation with anybody in this room, but we have got to do what we can do to stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves. And that being said, this morning, 
my prayer is that God would help us embrace the role of being his image bearers. You see, because as salt, there's two things that salt has the purpose of. One is to be a preserver. And the second one is to be a seasoner. Now, the preserver part of that we don't get as much because we don't live in a day and age where we, without refrigeration. We have refrigeration so we can put stuff uh, into our fridge and we can save it or our freezer and we can save it. I've got a lot of deer meat sitting in my freezer right now and it'll stay there a long time. I don't have to salt it and hang it to dry in order to, to enjoy it later, um, keep it from rotting. I have, I have refrigeration, but right, they didn't have that. So it's a preserver. And they would have thought about that. That would have been in their minds as part of the process of thinking through being salt. And we as Christians, as Christ followers, are to be those who preserve. Because the world, as the Bible teaches, is decaying. It is decaying. I know people like to say, well, it, you know, in the good old days, it wasn't this bad. In the good old days, there just wasn't this much sin. In the good old days, man, people knew basic morality. You mean like back in Genesis when the first family, like the one brother killed the other brother? You mean like those good old days? You mean like Sodom and Gomorrah good old days? You know, like what, what good old days are we talking about? The human race is broken. We're rebellious. There, there's no time you can look back and say we weren't rebellious as a people, as a, as a race. So it's kind of a false idea to say, well, if we could just get back to this. We don't need to get back to anything. We need to get back to Jesus. We need to get back to understanding who he is and what he's done and letting him be king of our life. When his rule and reign comes, all this broken stuff will be fixed. Right? I guess you could say that the best good old days would be in the Garden of Eden prior to the fall. And the beautiful part about the Bible is that he's saying he's going to restore all things back to a place where there's no shame, no guilt, no sin. And I'm looking forward to that day, by the way. I'm anticipating that day. I'm excited about that day. So, in this conversation about being salt and being light, being salt, we want to be a preserver. And the second thing we want to do is we want to be a seasoner. Now, my wife, she loves salt. She loves herself some salt, okay? Her, her, her take on this, I can, I can give her a little hard time on this one because it's not, not too big a deal. But um, when I met her first off, I didn't really realize that I didn't season my stuff very well. Um, but I learned pretty fast. And after 19 years of marriage, like, I like salt too. Uh, her philosophy is your body craves what it needs. So that's why she likes chocolate and salt. And... Um, but my take is, um, you know, I, like now it's like when I taste food, it's decently salted. And I'm like, give me some more salt because Jade has trained me. All right. But salt, here's the deal. As good as salt is, as great as it is to season food, bring the flavors out. Um, the reality is, is I don't ever sit down and pour a bowl of salt for breakfast. All right. I'm just like pour a big bowl of salt to say, man, you know, I'm going to skip the cereal today. and Just eat a bowl of salt. That, that's just gross. Okay. That, that, but that doesn't work that way. As we are seasoning for the world around us, our desire is not to be all clumped up. And part of the problem with Christians at times is that we can tend to have a holy huddle mentality. You ever heard that? Where we just kind of stay together. We like avoid the world. We just avoid the conversations with people in the world. Jesus in John 17 said, you know, I'm going, Father, to be back with you, but I'm leaving them in the world. And they have to be in the world because, it's, I mean, that, this is the way it works. Uh, Paul even says these same things in Corinthians. He says, you know, you can't leave the world. You, you, you're in the world, but not of the world. And so if we're going to actually be salt, if we're going to be seasoning, if we are going to be image bearers who display to the world, 
who God is and what he's done and who we're actually intended to be, then the fact of the matter is, is that we need to spread out a little bit. <laughs> we actually need to engage. There are people who have grown up in church environments where uh, they were told, like, don't hang out with those bad people. Well, listen, if you are struggling with sin, addiction, uh, and you cannot control yourself when you're around people who are doing bad things, you should just jump in with them, then absolutely, you probably should set some boundaries, right? Like, let's don't do that. But as a Christian, as a Christ follower, we should engage in the world. Where was Jesus when he was on the scene? (laughs) He was with sinners, which we are, by the way, sinners. He was with the sinners, so much so that they called him a drunkard and a glutton. He was accused of that. Now, was Jesus drunk and was he a glutton? No, because he was in those environments. He didn't become what they were. He met them where they were, but he also became, he, he helped them become who they were supposed to be, right? And that's what we should be doing. We should be engaging people. Now, some of you, again, you're, you're, uh, you're weak in places. And that's okay. Just admit, I'm, I'm weak. I can't be in those environments or I struggle. Not everybody should be part of a ministry that ministers to strippers. I know ministries in this city that do that very thing. Not everybody's called to that. I know ministries that are helping men get off of porn. Those, those, are, those are two big sexual issues in our culture that are killing us. Not everybody should participate in that because they might find themselves stumbling into it. Paul says, be very careful, right? But we have to engage in the world. And it's not just about those serious, those intense issues. There are lots of issues that the Christians, Christ followers should engage. And we're going to talk more about that in the coming, coming um, minutes. But here's the thing. We should be salt. We should be different. In fact, I would say it this way. To be who God intended us to be, right? To be, to be who God intended us to be is to be Christian, is to be what a Christian is. Now, Christian, again, is a word we use because that helps us understand uh, the structure and the group that we kind of clump ourselves with. But there weren't, that wasn't a terminology for them back there. So we can just say kingdom people. That's a better, maybe a better way to think about it. We are called to be kingdom people. And kingdom people should be the most human people. Truly human, the way God intended humanness. Does that make sense? Are you still with me? So, as we are who God intended us to be, it will have a flavor of life and it will bring a, preserva- a preservation. It will preserve in the midst of decay and death all around us. Now we're going to move on to the next metaphor that fits so well with this. But he says, you're not only the salt of the earth, but you are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. We are designed as God's creation to reflect God's glory. Now, what's weird about this phrase, he says, he says, uh, you are the light of the world. Um, if you know your Bible, then you know that Jesus is called the light of the world. So which one is it? Is it Jesus or is it us? Well, this is an interesting thought here, and I want you just to hang with me for a second. But Jesus was the epitome of what it means to be human. In fact, he was the perfect human. He put on display while he was here what humanness was designed to be. Did you know that? He was, he was the perfect human being and picture of humanity. And when we actually follow Jesus, we become not only what God wants us to be, but we become more human. We become fully what the original design and desire was. 
So, when we, he says, you are the light of the world, we are designed to reflect God's goodness, his grace, his gloriousness, his greatness to the whole world around us. That's what we're designed to do as these image bearers, to reflect that, to bring light to the world, to, be, to bring light into every circumstance. But in order to do that, we need Jesus Christ, the light of the world inside of us, don't we? Now, there's a very interesting thing in the Bible. The Bible says, um, in terms of this light and dark thing, that there are two kingdoms in the world. One is the kingdom of light, and one is the kingdom of darkness. That's right. And in John chapter 1, which is the prologue, there's a prologue, the first 18 verses of the book of John, it says Jesus came and that he was the light of the world, that he is the true light that gives light to everyone. But you know what it also says in John 1? It says that the people rejected the light. Why did they reject the light? Why did they reject, you know why they rejected it? Because they were under the influence of the kingdom of darkness. They're under the influence of the kingdom of Satan himself. And so there's a rejection that happens. Now, this is significant because this is still going on, not just in Jesus' day when he shows up on the scene as the light of the world, but even in our day, because Romans 1 paints a picture, and it tells us in Romans 1 that humanity as a race, as a people, as God's creation, became darkened in their thinking. You ever heard that phrase? Darkened in their thinking. And as a result of that darkened thinking, they became foolish and they exchanged the glory of God for a lie. And they worshiped the created instead of the creator. Why is that significant? Well, I think, I think if you're following, you understand the significance here because when we worship something other than God, it's like we're putting a bowl over the light. When we worship ourselves, which by the way, we are behind all idols in our life. When we, when we seek to find in things and people what only God can give us, we are actually putting a bowl over the light. And instead of reflecting the glory and the goodness of God, we actually are darkened in our minds and just reproducing that same darkness in the, the world around us. We're going to talk about this in just a second. But that means that the world is looking sometimes at the church and what they say is things like this. I don't think those people actually live any differently than I do. I think they chase after the same things as I do. I think they act and respond to situations the same thing as I I think they value the same things I do. Therefore, there's no distinctiveness and therefore there's a bowl over the light. There's a covering. So we don't stand out. We don't stick out. We don't actually contrast to the world's ways. We actually look just like them. We syncretize to the world's ways. Did you know that the church is called to be a people who are different? First Peter chapter 2, he says this, You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And your job, you were once in the darkness, but you've been brought into the kingdom of light. And in that kingdom of light, you're to, to declare the praises of that king that brought us out of the darkness into the light. That's what we're, we're called to do. Not to put a bowl over us, a basket over us. It's silly to think somebody would go into a house and put a bunch of light bulbs in all of their light fixtures and then go back and cover them up with tape and paper so that when they turn the switch on, nothing would happen. That's silly, right? It's ridiculous. Even to say it out loud was ridiculous to hear myself say that, right? It's ridiculous. 
Uh, it's silly to think that somebody would, would put lights in their house and then put uh, covers on those lights of some sort that would not allow the light to emanate from it. Because that's not how it works. And notice in this, he gives us these two things. He says that, first off, that those who are truly reflecting God, that in community, they're like a city on a hill. Now, any of you guys ever been where it's really dark? Like really, really dark? Um, I, I, uh, I've been in places out in the country before. When I grew up, my first seven years of life, I was in the Houston area. It's never dark. There's always light pollution. You never really see the stars there for multiple reasons, right? But when I moved to West Texas, when I moved to the Panhandle, it's dark. And what's crazy out there is that you're driving and like you see way off in the distance, you see this big glow. And you're like, what's that? Oh, that's Leveland. That's 45 miles away. What? It's like, what? That's like way over there. It shines in that darkness. And Jesus says that, that when the community of God's people reflect who he is, we are like a city on a hill. They would have understood this as Jerusalem on a hill when it was lit up at night with the torches, not with electricity, right? But with torches and their, their lights and their lamps would have been like a city that on the hill that is illuminating light over the surrounding area. That's what our lives, that's what in community as church we look like when we actually reflect who we are. We were designed to be the light. We were designed to show the world who God is. In fact, um, in First uh, Corinthians, uh, actually Second Corinthians chapter three verse eighteen, it says there that we, uh, with unveiled faces, will 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 reflect God's glory with ever increasing glory. That's like this is the Christian life. That over the course of our life, the light of Christ should get brighter and brighter and brighter over over. Uh, to those around us. You know where he's talking about that? Like where that comes from? Uh, you guys know the story in the Old Testament of, the, in, of, of Moses who went up on the mountain and he asked something very bold, very brash maybe. He said, God, can I see you? And God's like, no, you would die. That's just straight up. That's what he said. He says, no, come on, God, let me, let me see you. So he puts him in the cave. God covers him. He goes past and he lets Moses just catches backside, just a little bit, just a little glimpse. Moses comes off the mountain, and what do the people say? Dude, you're glowing. Moses, like you're lit up, and we can't look at you. You've got to put something over your face. So literally, he wears a veil to cover his face because he was glowing. I think it's a great picture that as Christ followers, the more we spend time with Jesus, the more Jesus will be reflected in our countenance and our character. That's why the Sermon on the Mount is not just a list of how-tos and how to be a better version of yourself. It's, a, it's pushing us to spend time with our Creator in whose image we are created to be, living and doing life and reflecting. And the more we spend time with that Creator, the more we call that word intimacy, getting close to God. The closer we get to God, the more our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, our life group members... Our spouses, our children will see the beauty of Christ in us. We will light up the house. We will light up the office. We will light up the neighborhood. Not because it's ultimately us, but because we are reflecting who we were intended to be as the, wor- the one who was fully human and fully God came down and made a way for us to be filled with his Holy Spirit so that now we can reflect that to the world around us. Our lives should 
be putting Christ on display. And when we come into a world that is darkened in their minds, that is darkened, like Romans 1 says, when we come and they are confused and they exchange the truth of God for a lie, when they exchange the glory of the the creator for the created, when they do that, we come in as Christ followers, not with a hammer, not with, uh, I'm going to beat you down. I'm going to guilt you into doing the right thing. Not with, I'm going to look down on you from my lofty position of self-righteousness. But we come in and we display what it really looks like to be Christ-like. What it, be, what it means to be truly human. In fact, we're told in this passage at the end, he says, in the same way. Let your light shine before men so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. The goal of being a good person, which that's a very dangerous thing to say, right? Because it's, it, what do we mean by good person? But to the goal of doing good works is not so people will say, man, you're awesome. You're such a great person. It's so that they will glorify God. So that they will actually give glory to their creator. Now, some of you guys, when you hear the word good works in that phrase, in that, that sentence, in the same way, let your light so shine before men, they may see your good works. Some of us in this room, we've been trained from the time we were young that good works, like this is how you maintain your status before God. This is how you earn your way into the kingdom of God. This is how you make sure that you're actually being a good Christian and, and being a good, you know, you know, getting the blessings that God uh, offers to us. And I just want to remind you of what Ephesians 2, 8 says. It says this in Ephesians 2, 8, for you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is God's gift. Your salvation, your coming into the kingdom of God is not because of good works. It was a gift from God, right? In fact, he goes on in the next verse in nine, he says, not from works so that no one could boast. Because if we could say, I can earn my way into the kingdom, we'd be like, look at me. I'm awesome. Look at me. I'm doing such a great job. God, you you really got to love me. We can't boast because we know that we are foolish. We know that we can never be good enough. That even when we do the good things, our motives are many times screwed up and we're like, it's all about us. At least I'm just being honest about myself, okay? But he goes on to say in verse 10 of that same passage, for we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. God has prepared a plan for you in your life. And it's so, if you are a Christ follower, if you are in Christ, you have put your trust in Christ. If you've gotten off a religious treadmill of good works, trying to be good enough, and you've accepted what Christ did for you in your place. If you have received that and you become a child and you receive the Holy Spirit in your life, God has a, this incredible plan and purpose for your life to do good works so that, what? Other people would know who he is. Other people would know. It, we say this fairly often around here, but it's kind of weird, isn't it? That, you know, that God didn't just beam us to heaven the moment we put our trust in God. The moment we put our trust in, in, in Jesus, why don't we just go straight to heaven? Because we get to participate now in being the salt and being the light. We get to participate in the mission. I think there are so many Christians who are missing the adventure of actually joining in God's work this side of heaven. God doesn't want us just to have good little lives and kind of keep to ourselves. 
he wants to use our life to demonstrate his goodness and his glory to all people. Now, it, it looks different. I mean, everybody, keep your personality. Keep who you are. Don't try to become somebody else. Be who you are, right? But let's be followers of Jesus who look increasingly like our Savior. Let's be salt. Let's be light. I want to read the Beatitudes again because, as I said, that's the character of a Christ follower. This section speaks to the influence. And without the character, the influence doesn't work. Okay? So here we go. The poor in spirit are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Question. Do you think that when we are humble, that that is attractive to the world? That that is attractive to those who don't know Jesus? When we truly have a humble posture, because we understand who God is and who we are, we understand what God has done and what we could not have earned. Do you think that that is attractive to the world? Do you think that is beautiful? I think it is. We're being light. We're being salt. Those who mourn are blessed, for they will be comforted. When we actually grieve over the injustice in our world, the sinfulness in our world, do you think that's attractive? Absolutely it is. It's attractive. To the world around us, it it shows who Jesus is. When he was here, he mourned and he grieved over the brokenness and the lostness and the sinfulness of the world. The third thing, the gentle are blessed. Do you think that when we use power rightly, not to get our own way, but to protect those who are innocent, do you think that that's beautiful to the world and attractive to the world? It is. It's being salt. It's being light. It's preserving. It's bringing seasoning. It's illuminating the darkness. Do you think that when we hunger and thirst for right, righteousness, when we want the world to be right with God and right with one another, that that is beautiful and attractive? Absolutely. We could go through each one. You get the point, right? Those who mourn, those who are gentle, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The next section of it, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted. Listen, that's not just a list of rules to follow. That is the kind of people that we are. In Christ. And that's the kind of thing that allows us as human beings to participate in the work of seasoning and illuminating to the world who God is and what He's done. We have a value to bring, we have a great value to bring as God's creations. When we are being who God made us to be, the world can see God's beauty in that. Now, I would also add to you, there are still some on this planet Earth who when they see you following Jesus, it ticks them off. And they want to squelch that. And you know why? Because, just as with Jesus, the darkness cannot comprehend the light. It hates the light at times. And there is a kingdom of darkness that does want to stop that. But we are called to be the salt and to be the light regardless of how other people respond. I mean, the very last beatitude, the persecution that comes. There are brothers and sisters all over the world. And we're not talking about persecution or hardship that comes just from life. We're talking about when you are persecuted because you do the right thing for the kingdom of God. There is going to be some opposition to that. But we also know that in those beatitudes, he says, blessed are those who are this. Blessed, blessed, blessed. So, my question to us this morning, 
Have we become too much like the world that there's no distinctiveness in us? Has the church become so syncretized that we value and act just like the world acts and value what the the world values? I pray that that's not the case because that would be salt becoming foolish. It would be a light put under a bowl. As a church body, we're called to be salt, we're called to be light, we're called to be city on the hill. One brings flavor and preserves while the other illuminates truth. One attracts the other sins. We want to be a church that tracks people to Jesus and points them to Jesus. Amen? That's who we want to be. And I want to pray that over us this morning. But I want to also remind you as I, as I pray, um, if you have never received the gift of salvation, if you've never received God into your, your life, if he's never come in and changed you, transformed you, um, God created you for a bigger purpose than just your own agenda, your own happiness, your own pursuit of pleasure in this world. He, pers- he, he created you for himself. And this morning he calls you and invites you to himself. And I want to pray that over us, okay? Father, I thank you so much that you are a great God. I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you are for us. I thank you that you're working in us and around us. And God, this morning, even as we're in this place, as we're in this, this room filled with a, a group of people uh, from diverse backgrounds, um, people, God, who we come with all of our different stories, our different challenges, our different doubts, our different fears, our worries, circumstances. Some of us are really excited right now about life. Some of us are really down about life right now. Some of us are facing discouragement and depression. Some of us, God, are coming in and we're like, man, life couldn't be better. But I pray that wherever we are today, that we would remember that we were made for you. We were made by you and we were made for you. And I pray that we would be the people you've intended us to be. And I thank you, Jesus, that you made a way for us to be the people that you intended us to be. And I pray that even in this moment right now, Holy Spirit, would you breathe life into this congregation? Would you breathe life into my heart in a fresh new way? And would you remind us of what joy and what blessing it is to participate in your work in all the earth, to be the salt, to be the light. We pray in your name. Amen.